Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue our series from the book of Matthew, we take a look at how Jesus developed a new community. But before we get to this week's message, we just want to remind you that our winter discipleship programming is heating up. And you can find signups for all sorts of things you can become involved in on the Church Center app. We invite you to check us out either in the app or visit us on the web at harborchurches.churchcenter.com. Now, let's head over to Pastor Tim as we consider a new way of discipleship. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tim and... uh, um, hopefully you had a, a good Christmas and a great New Year, and hopefully 2022 is already starting off well for you. We've, uh, the kids have already had two snow days. My kids, at least, have had two snow days, and so it's starting out exhausting already, but that's good. It's good. Um, we are, <laughs> we're in Matthew, and uh, we've committed that in 2022, we are going to work through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's one of four biographies on the life of Jesus, and uh, we made a commitment beginning in Advent that we're going to work our way story by story, sometimes line by line, through the life of Jesus. Uh, 2022 is kind of, uh, we've declared it the, the year of studying Jesus deeply and taking his ministry seriously. And so um, we're, we're just working story by story, and we are now in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And uh, this is one of those teachings that um, I remember the exact place where this teaching became real to me, made sense to me. So some, sometimes you don't have that like crystal clear, like, okay, this is where I was, this is the teaching I heard, when this made sense to me. Uh, but I, I have that with this one. Uh, maybe you have like a passage in your life or a story where um, all of a sudden like the blinders came off and you realize, oh, that's what's going on in this thing. So for me, uh, Matthew chapter four, this is the story of Jesus calling his disciples. Uh, it's, a story, it's the story of discipleship and who Jesus calls, and how he calls them. And uh, I remember I was uh, 23 years old when this story made sense. I was actually a, a freshman student at seminary um, before this story really made sense to me. And uh, it, was, it, was, it made sense to me. It was given to me through the teaching of a teacher named Ray Vanderlaan. You've heard me talk about Ray Vanderlaan if you've been here before, because there, I, I don't know that there's any teacher who has made a, a more significant impact on my faith journey than, than that man. He's just a, a, I bless God for him and his ministry in my life. But it was 23, the first time I hadn't known him at the time. I didn't even know his name. I, had no, I knew nothing about him. And uh, I was, um, well, long story short, I, uh, I, w- I was um, part of this weird like boxing club in the basement of Colin Hall at Hope College. And there was a guy in the, that was, so it was a bunch of young guys. And then we had a couple, every once in a while, we'd bring in somebody who knew what they're talking about, who would like teach us. He's like our Mickey from Rocky. And there's this guy that came in and uh, he knew I was in seminary. And so he said, hey, there's this, there's a donor event for significant donors. Obviously, he didn't say significant. I think he just said there's a, an event for donors. Obviously, I was a recent grad of Hope College. I was not a significant donor. Um, but he said, hey, there's, a, there's an event, and I would love for you to join me. It's with a speaker named Ray Vanderlaan. He, my wife and I um, went to Israel with him, and we would like you to be our guest at this event. Would you, would you join us? And then he said the magical words. He said, there'll be free food. And I was like, I'm in, I'm in. Uh, now, so I, uh, I show up and immediately, it was one of those events where he told me, he's like, you know, like wear your Sunday's best. So I, I, I wore my Sunday's best, but it was one of those moments where you walk into a room and you realize right away that you're out of your league. Uh, I'm 23. This is the, the who's who of West Michigan. Uh, actually, many of them are, uh, are famous on a, like a, a global scale. Um, in fact, it's the kind of people that if I were to name their names, it would sound like I'm name dropping, right? So I won't do that. But it was the, like, these are really humble but powerful leaders, like strong leaders, um, leaders who have made an impact uh, in a way that, like, we're benefiting as a culture from their impact. And I walk into a room, and uh, there, like, I realized pretty quickly that I'm underdressed for the room I'm in. I, uh, I, I had one pair of dress pants, um, what I consider dress pants. They were khakis. Everything else was jeans. I had one pair of khakis. The problem with my khakis was they were from, a, they were from like a decade earlier, and fashion had shifted in that decade. Um, 
some of you, those of you who are over 35, you may get this reference. The rest of you probably won't, but uh, they were uh, fashioned in the style of hammer pants. <laughs> Do you know hammer pants? Uh, the, yeah, uh, MC Hammer, the rapper, he was like, uh, kids, he was like Drake 30 years ago. Um, but he had these like parachute pants. And so my pants were way too big and fashion had moved on, but I was wearing these pants. They also happened to be, and, and this probably has come back. I don't, I, I've lost track of fashion, but these are probably back. But at the time, um, they were not in style. And a decade earlier, they were in style. Um, but do you remember carpenter pants? Again, they may be, I, I don't, they may be popular again. I don't know. But uh, carpenter pants essentially had a, a loop on your hip where if you wanted, you could apparently, just in case on your khakis you needed to do a project, you could stick your hammer in that, and you could like grab your hammer and you had your hammer. I mean, it was it, very reasonable. Um, so I was wearing hammer pants that actually were hammer pants. Um, and I showed up to this event, and I immediately realized I'm way over my head in this event. And, uh, and then Ray Vanderlaan, so we sit down, and we start eating, and he, he speaks during dinner. And uh, I'm in my own head about it. I'm thinking, man, I'm out of my league. Uh, I must stand out like a sore thumb. I'm easily 30 years younger than anyone else in this room. And then he starts teaching. And his teaching that day was on discipleship. And what he said so impacted me that uh, it has, I've carried this teaching with me and I've given it often uh, in different formats and different ways and repackaged. But this teaching made such a dent in me. His, his premise in the teaching was that um, discipleship, this, this full-on studying, learning, apprenticing to be like Jesus, discipleship, is the missing ingredient in the Western American church. That was, his, that was his premise. He said, we've taken discipleship and we've distilled discipleship into a program that we do for like six weeks in the basement of a church. And we say, well, that's discipleship. You showed up to our discipleship class. And he goes, not to knock that, like six-week study groups are great, but he said, that's not discipleship. If you put discipleship in its biblical context, what you realize quickly is what we've made discipleship is not discipleship. And then he began to unpack, like, what would discipleship look like in its original context? And uh, I remember, so he, he does this teaching, and I'm sitting at this table feeling over my head, and all of a sudden, I, I just had this moment where, like, a fire was lit in me. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Uh, and so then um, uh, I go back to seminary with this like, new passion. And um, my sophomore year, second year, Midler, they call it in seminary. Your second year of seminary, you begin preaching in other churches. And what they teach you in seminary is to write a couple of sermons and then preach them in as many churches as you can uh, as a way of like, figuring out like, what connects and what doesn't connect. And so one of my teachings was on discipleship. It was one of my first ones. And I had taught this um, we, we referred to them as our $1,000 sermons because, you know, they pay you peanuts per sermon, but you preach it so much that it's like worth something at some point. And uh, that was one of them. And I had preached it from church to church. Uh, every Wednesday or so, they would come out with an email um, for pulpit supply. And if you were quick, you would get it. And it was often in the evening services of churches. And I taught discipleship everywhere I went because I was passionate about this. Anyway, so fast forward. Um, that's my story from 15 years ago. Fast forward to seven months ago, eight months ago, I was going through my old sermons, um, just kind of like reminiscing on, on where I've been. It's important to do that once in a while. I'm, I'm edging on 40 now. And so I thought, like, I just want to see kind of like where God has brought me, what was interesting to me then and where it is now. And I came across that sermon and I'm reading through it. And I remember the message. Like, I remember preaching this message. I remember it all, except for there was one story in the sermon, and it was the ending story. This was a story that I, I, I to use sermon, uh, our preaching language, I landed the plane with this story every single week. Um, uh, we, I probably told this story 15, 20, 30, 40 times. I probably told this story, and I forgot it. Like, I, had for, I, I knew it, but I had forgotten I had told it. And I'm reading through the story, and I'm, honest, I'm honestly, as I'm reading through it now, 15 years later, um, I'm slightly embarrassed by my story. Like, truly, I'm like, I can't believe I landed. It doesn't feel like it's connected to the sermon, really. I, I'm kind of embarrassed by the story. So I'm telling my, my buddy about this. I'm like, yeah, I was looking through my old sermon, and, and his response to me, he said, Tim, Oh, by the way, as I told this story week after week, I would get emotional. I remember getting emotional. No matter how many times I told the story, I would find myself emotional. And it's a silly little story. Uh, so it feels now. So I, uh, I was telling my buddy about the story, and I told him about how I preached it week after week and how it's kind of embarrassing. And, and his response to me was, don't shrug that off. He said, something about 
25-year-old Tim, me, uh, something about you when you were 25 connected with that story. It resonated with you for some reason. I bet you, he said, he goes, I bet you, if you can figure out what that is, I bet that that's pretty interesting. Anyway, so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through some of the discipleship stuff um, that, that has lit a fire in me. Some of this um, you may have heard if you've been here a while. Some of it is hopefully new. And, um, and then I want to share with you a story that I haven't shared. I just shared it in the 8 a.m. service, so now I've shared it once in 15 years. But I haven't shared it in 15 years. And, uh, and then um, I want to pass along a thought or two around maybe why uh, that story resonated then. And I'm still processing some of that. Anyway, Matthew chapter 4. Let's start with text. Um, let's start where we often start. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 12. Matthew 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. His sermon was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Let's stop our story there. We'll pick it up there next week again. But one of the things we, we say often here is begin, even though this seems like a fairly straightforward story, it's really important that we have a healthy curiosity and we ask good questions. And when it comes to a story like this, even though it feels straightforward, there are at least two lines of questioning that I find really fascinating. I'm sure there's more, but I know of two lines of questioning that could really be two teachings, two totally different things um, that I find equally interesting. The first one, which we're not going to chase today, but I do think here's a line of questioning some of you should chase. We'll chase it maybe in a future week. But one of the questions we have to ask in a story like this is, why does Jesus move? So Jesus moves. Do I have a map? It's probably in the slide stack ahead of it. Yeah. Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. Why does Jesus move? That's a, it's an interesting line of questions. Now, we know from the story that Jesus moves because John is in prison. And we know that the story before the story, two before the story, John is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, and he was baptizing Jesus. Now John's in prison. Now, here's the questioning I think that's worth asking. Does Jesus move closer to the threat that has put John in prison, or does he move further away from it? Does Jesus run towards the threat, or does he run away from the threat? Because he moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. So why does he move where he moves? And is, it, is he closer to the trouble that, caused, that John got into, or is he further from it? The, Jesus preaches a sermon. His first sermon is, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Is that message, does it, does, is it connected to why John is in prison? is worth chasing this stuff. Uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 9, or Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, um, as a way of explaining what's going on here. Why does Matthew quote Isaiah chapter 9? Is what's going on in Matthew chapter 9 connected to why John is in prison? And is that connected to why Jesus moves to where Jesus moves? Okay, we're not going to chase these questions. Um, they're interesting. We will chase them again. Uh, John will end up getting killed and we'll, we'll chase those questions again um, when we get to that story. That's the first set of questions. The second set of questions that I find equally interesting, and I want to chase these today because it'll set the scene for next week. Second layer of questions on the story is Jesus then goes up the beach to Bethsaida, which is right, at, right here. It's not too far. He goes up the beach where he sees two sets of brothers and they're fishing. Jesus sees these brothers and he says to the brothers, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Just a handful of words. Come follow me. And uh, now, if I'm, if I'm reading the story without uh, knowing the story, and I'm just going to stop there, my assumption in the story is that they're going to say to Jesus, uh, no. 
right? Like, my assumption is they're going to, Jesus moved into town. He's the new guy in town. According to Matthew, it doesn't seem like they're like friends. They don't know each other. It seems like they, this is the first time they're meeting each other. Why do they get out of the boat? Why do they drop everything? They not only drop everything, they leave their nets. They leave their boats. This is their life. Like, this is their livelihood. They leave their father, and they go and they follow this guy that has just moved back into town or just moved into town. Why? Right? My assumption is they're going to say, Jesus, no. We're not going to do it. That's weird. Why would we follow you? We're not going to follow you. You would tell your kids, if a strange man comes on the beach, don't follow that man. Right? Why do they follow him? Now, abstract art from our history or, or B, B movies on Christian, like B Christian movies, don't help a whole lot. These are the images we have of this story. Uh, so image like this, the ducks, and then an image like this. Yeah, if that dude comes walking around and says, follow me, you, you follow the guy with the glowing head. Um, <laughs> you follow the guy with the sunbeams coming out of his head. It would make sense if this is it. The problem is Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus has got sunbeams coming out of his head. Um, apparently, that's not actually what happened. Jesus didn't have sunbeams coming out of his head. Uh, and, and while we're on the matter, uh, Jesus also... Matthew doesn't tell us anything about a white bathrobe or a blue Miss America sash or a manicured beard or clear all hair. None of that is in the story. Matthew seems to believe that we are going to read the story. And with the details he's given us in the story, he's given us enough details that his first audience would read the story and they would know exactly why, they're, why these disciples would leave everything to follow Jesus. That this was not a question to the first audience. Now, living many generations later, for us, we read a story and we have all the questions. Why do they leave their boats? Why do they leave their nets? I've even heard sermons about how great the disciples' faith was because they left everything to follow Jesus. I want to make the case that that, well, let's dive in. What are the details we have in in the story? What are the details um, that Matthew gives us that would draw some conclusions? Now, Matthew leaves. Show the map again. Nazareth. And we read, because John's in prison, he heads to Capernaum. So maybe we can hunt the details down in the city of Capernaum. If I had a, let's, okay, let's imagine with me. If I had a time machine, and I was a, a big, apparently a big time machine. I, I don't have a time machine. I don't even own a hot tub, um, so I don't have a time machine. But, <laughs> such a stupid joke. Uh, I don't have a time machine. Um, but if I could, like, all of us, we're going to go on a time machine, and we're going to go back to Capernaum. First century Capernaum, back in time, back to another location. Now, obviously, some things would stand out. They're speaking a different language. They're wearing different clothes. No one's staring at their cell phone. There's no, like, earbuds in their ears. Like, some things would obviously, but we, we're ready for that. We know that that's coming. There are probably a couple of things, though, that we are not expecting to happen. There's probably a couple of things that are, if you're at all like me growing up and knowing these biblical stories or hearing these stories or seeing the movies or looking at the paintings, there's some things about Capernaum that we're probably not expecting. Let me give you three things that would likely maybe stand out to us. First thing in Capernaum is Capernaum is right, there's a major highway that runs right through the very center of Capernaum, a major highway. We've talked about this in the past. It's a road known as the Via Maris, the way of the sea. This road connected Egypt to Rome. Uh, late, uh, earlier it was Greece and Persia and Babylon, this road connected the world. This was an international trade road. It's a big deal. Because I always picture, when I picture Israel, um, most of my life picturing Israel, it was remote. Uh, And this is true for much of Israel. It's desert, it's remote, it's in the middle of nowhere. That's not true for Capernaum. Jesus doesn't move, Jesus moves into the center of one of the busiest cities of his day. On an international highway. That's the first bit of data that I think may stand out to us. There are people speaking different languages. There are people that look different. They're all traveling through the middle of this this town. Second piece of data is Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. It's it's actually a freshwater lake. Um, uh, It actually, in our story, tells us it's a lake, Um, but uh, often referred to as the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Capernaum is right here. These are the ruins. It would have extended way back in, in this area, but they just haven't excavated yet. Here's a handful of the ruins. And if you notice, it's right along the Sea of Galilee. On the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus goes somewhere in this area and he calls his fishermen um, in a city called, town called Bethsaida. But uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus would have walked out not far, put, been able to put his feet on the water, 
or on the water. Um, and then he would have been able to, <laughs> to take a left and he would have walked up the beach. That's the second story, okay? So that's the coastal town. Third bit of data is this building right here, the most significant landmark. Now, you can see this building right here. This is actually a modern-day church. It kind of looks like, um, what's the plane in Star Wars? Millennium Falcon. It kind of looks like the Millennium Falcons. It's actually, um, it's, a, it's a church today. So that wouldn't have been there if we're in a time machine. That's not there. But this structure would have. Uh, now, um, well, yeah, let me show you up a little bit closer on this structure. Uh, it's actually, this is a, there was a temple below that was destroyed, and this was built on the footprint of the old temple. So you can see the foundation's a little bit different. Um, but this is, or, I'm sorry, synagogue. This is the synagogue. The center of their world in a major city was the synagogue. Now, um, this area is where you would go for worship. Uh, this is uh, the, every, every week, the Torah teacher of that week, sometimes a rabbi, a teacher, would stand on what was known as a, a bima, and they would read the scriptures. Then they would sit down in Moses' seat, and they would give the sermon. You sit for the sermon, you, you stand for the scriptures. Okay, So that's every week. And the leaders would sit in these, uh, the chief seats, um, they would sit in these seats, and you would, you would Worship as a community, okay? Now, I take you there, show you all this, because there's something else about this particular synagogue that stands out. Namely, there's a room connected to it. Now, this room is in almost all synagogues, but it's much smaller in most synagogues. This room is substantial. I know this picture doesn't do it tons of justice, but it's a pretty large room by ancient means. Any guesses as to what this room is? School, a school, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, they would have Torah scrolls in it, so in some ways it'd be a library, but it's a, a school. The Jewish people, especially in Capernaum, prided themselves in their educational system. Capernaum was the Harvard, the MIT, the Hope College of their world. <laughs> It was, it was prestigious. Uh, Jesus moves to the Harvard of his world. This is the school. Uh, there's a quote from uh, Josephus, a first century uh, Jewish historian. Josephus says, Above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. Education to the Jewish world was a big deal. Now let me walk you through the educational system of first century Israel. So this is the stuff that when, um, when Ray Vanderlaan opened my eyes to it for the first time, it blew me away. So the stuff I'm about to share. Um, if you want to go deeper, I'm going to go through it pretty quick. If you want to go deeper, I recommend uh, the writings of a historian named Shmuel Safrai. Mostly, oh, his picture didn't show up. Sorry, Shmuel. <laughs> Shmuel Safrai. His picture's back there. Everyone turn around. There's Shmuel there he is. <laughs> That's Shmuel. Um, it's not here, though. I don't know if something happened in transition. Uh, Shmuel Safrai. He writes a book called The Jewish People in the First Century, and he lays out, um, he's not the only one to lay this out, but he lays it out in a really interesting way, um, a really helpful way, of the educational system of the school. I'm going to try to simplify that system. Starts with curriculum. Now, you all saw the back screen, so you know what the curriculum is. What's the curriculum of the Jewish world. What are they studying in school? Torah, or Torah, they would say. Torah, or Torah. The Torah, if you're not familiar, is the first five books of our Old Testament, what they would refer to as their Bible. Um, it was the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. To the Jewish people, they believed that in the desert, God when Moses went up to Mount Sinai in some supernatural way, God gave his people the Ten Commandments, but beyond just the Ten Commandments, God gave them Torah. Torah, they believed, was a gift. And so you would study Torah in school. You would read Torah. You would study Torah. You would try to memorize Torah. You would debate Torah. You would center your life on the study of these five books. What we refer to as the law, they would say it's way bigger than just laws. For them, Torah, they actually, uh, in, the, in a book called the Talmud, which is a collection of the oral statements uh, from around the time of Jesus written down later. Um, but they, they refer to the Torah and the Talmud as the way and the truth and the life. 
You want to know how you live? Study Torah. Want to know how, how, do you, how do you make it in the world? How do you thrive in the world? You study Torah. A Torah, they said, is the way and the truth in life. For them, um, it wasn't, I love how Tanner said this last week, if you were with us. Um, it was, the, the most interesting question not, is not, is God, does God exist? Remember this, for those of you who were with us? Um, it's, it's, is God good? Is he trustworthy? For them, the question is not, um, is Torah true? It's true. They believe it's true. It's true. The question is, is it true enough for you to obey it? Will you build your life on it? They assume it's true. God gave them it. It's true. The question is, do we obey it? Because you can believe something is true and not obey it, and your life will still fall apart. Believing true things are true does not, you know, doesn't help you at all. It's building a life on something that you believe is true. Um, and so they would study Torah. Now, first layer of school. Somewhere around the age of six years old, you would go to school at your local, so that little room off the side of the synagogue, at your local synagogue, you would begin the first level of school known as Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer, it means house of the book, house of the book. This would go from about six years old till 10 years old. Now the, the goal of Bet Sefer was a local Torah teacher would come in and they would teach you as a kid, they would teach you Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Your job over the course of those four-ish years was to memorize Torah. By the way, the debate in the, in the first century was, um, at what age do we start teaching this stuff? And in the Talmud, um, the, there is a rabbi who says, up until the age of six, we do not teach Torah, but from ages six up, we stuff them full of Torah like an ox. God, kids, Torah. Um, you would memorize Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You would memorize Torah. Now, this raises the question. If you're 10-year-old, like how do you, how do you make sure that um, those, okay, so those of you who have um, kids in the Christian school system, or for those of you who are students in a Christian school system, here's the trouble that, that we have, right? Parents of kids, kids in the Christian school system. The trouble is, how do you study the scriptures every single day as part of your education and not strip them of their power? How do you take a book and like have to take tests on the book, have to memorize like David and then Solomon? Like how do you take a book, test on the book, and not strip the book that is life of its life? How do we not just turn it into another academic textbook? That's the question. How do we do that? Their answer... On the first day of Bet Sefer, the Torah teacher would come in and he would bring his copy of the scroll and he would bring honey, probably not bee honey, probably date honey, um, the honey from dates, not like going on a date honey, but like honey from dates. And he'd take a scroll and he'd take his honey and he would give some honey to every, every kid. Now, honey's rare. You don't get honey a lot. It's not like my kids who get honey every time they walk in our uh, office. They get a sucker or some kind of candy. Honey's rare. Sugar is rare. So they would take the honey, they would take the scroll, and they would take, tell the kids, actually they say, repeat after me. Let's, let's do, go along with me. Repeat after me. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Like dripping from the honeycomb. God in the Psalms connects scripture to honey. For them, they wanted to draw the connection from at a very young age. This is not just a book we study. It's not just a book of rules and laws. This is life. This book contains the very words of life. This is a gift of our God given to us after he set us free. For how to stay free. And so as a six-year-old, by the way, um, I, I remember thinking like, wow, like six-year-olds, 10-year-olds memorizing five books of the Bible. That feels like us, feels far-fetched. Now I have kids, and I realize that my six-year-olds hang out with other six-year-olds. My six-year-old hangs out with other six-year-olds, and they know every single word to the movie Frozen, part one and two. So we just got to be honest about this. This is not, this is not an issue of ability. Like this, our kids can do this. You can do this, students. This is not an issue of ability. This is an issue of uh, devotion, of commitment. Like for them, this scripture was everything. And you would study it in Beth Sefer from between the ages six and 10. Now, around the age of 10, the best of the best of the best students, those who memorize the scriptures, not just here, but actually felt like it was starting to come here. The best of the best of the best students would move on to the next layer of schooling known as Bet Talmud. 
Um, also, house of learning, it means, house of learning. Now, um, this was strictly for boys, um, and so the, when you see pictures, you'll see just boys. Uh, that's still to this day. Um, girls would actually finish learning Deuteronomy if they didn't have that fully committed to memory, and then they would learn the Psalms because women were the worship leaders in the home. Uh, and yet, boys would go on, the best of the best, but only the best of the best. Most boys, if you didn't have it memorized well, if you weren't passionate or serious enough about it, you would be told by the local teachers, thanks, you've tried hard, but I, think, I don't think you have what it takes. I don't think you have what it takes. I think you should, go, you should go study with your dad. He does an honorable profession. Without his job, your dad's a builder, your dad's a fisherman. Without his job, our civilization would fall apart. Go learn your your dad's trade. You've got the Torah. You've got enough. You'll be fine. Um, but for the best of the best, the students who revere the Torah the most, the students who, who loved it the most, they would go on in the next layer of schooling, Bet Talmud. Now in Bet Talmud, you would build upon those first five books of the Bible and you would begin to study the rest of our Old Testament, the writings, the Psalms, the prophets. You'd begin learning the rest of our Old Testament and you'd begin studying the teachings of the rabbis the teachers. You begin learning their interpretations on, on scripture. Now, um, what they understood, follow me on this one, their, uh, their different teachers had different ways of reading the scripture. It's still true to this day, right? You, different pastors read the same passage and will have different conclusions on the passage. In the day of Jesus, there were eight great debates. We will cover all eight of them at some point as we go through Matthew. There are eight great debates at the time of Jesus. There's a debate on divorce. We'll cover divorce. Uh, there's a debate on, on uh, love your enemy. What does it mean to love your, actually, it's love your neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? The Bible says, Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor. Are the Romans my neighbor? Because I don't want to love them. Are the Samaritans my neighbor? One rabbi would say one thing. Another rabbi would say another thing. Uh, one rabbi would say, your neighbor is Jews. Love the, all Jews, no matter how much you disagree with them. Love all Jews. Another rabbi might say no. So Rabbi Shammai, love Jews. Rabbi Hillel, two big famous schools of rabbi at the time of Jesus. Rabbi Hillel says no, you have to go beyond Jews. You have to love others, other nations. It's bigger. Your job as a student wasn't to have an opinion. Your opinion meant nothing. You are 14. Your opinion doesn't mean anything. Your opinion at this point, what your job was simply to know what they believed, to be able to recite. This is what Shammai says. This is what Hillel says. Um, another, another one of the eight great debates was uh, how do you honor the Sabbath? The Bible says honor the Sabbath, do no work. So um, what's work? It doesn't tell us what work is. Can we, like, can, we, can we walk on the Sabbath? Can we, like, can we cook on the Sabbath? What's work? One rabbi said this is work. Another rabbi said this is work. Your job as a student wasn't to have an opinion. It was to memorize and to understand not just what they believe, but where that came from. Now, um, well, I actually think we should value the opinions of our students. Absolutely, they see stuff that we just never see, 100%. Um, and Jesus, I think, will show us that in the story. I actually think the strategy of having to know both sides of an argument to the point where this is why they believe what they believe is a lost art in many ways. Like the Jewish people have this art of saying, here's what they believe and why they believe it. Here's what they believe and why they believe it. Uh, and now we can start to form our opinions knowing all of like what they believe and why they believe it. Anyway, that's my opinion. Um, now, this rabbi, a rabbi's particular understanding of, uh, of the rules of kind of how to live life was what was referred to as a rabbi's yoke. So when Jesus comes along and he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus says these things about yoke, Jesus is using rabbinical language from his day and age that probably gets lost on us. It's a yoke is an, a, it's the thing that ties two ox together. Um, it, Jesus essentially says, if you strap on with me, the way I teach, the way I li live life, if you follow me, it's not filled with rules. It's not filled with burdens. It's not complicated. Is it hard sometimes? Absolutely. But it's not complicated. Follow me. Jesus, in doing that and talking about yoke, is entering into a first century rabbinical model that if we miss it, we miss what Jesus is doing in that. Um, now, uh, a rabbi's teaching was referred to as a yoke. Every rabbi had a yoke. But most rabbis' yoke was an interpretation or was essentially another rabbi's yoke. They would pass them down. And so you would say, um, 
we're not Jewish and I'm not a rabbi, but you would say potentially, I have Tim's yoke. I, how Tim reads the scripture, I read the scripture. And I would say, well, I actually have um, Reverend Harris for Kike, who was my pastor growing up. I have his yoke. I'm just passing down his yoke. That's how it worked. But every once in a while, there would be a rabbi who came along with a new yoke, a new way of reading scripture. This rabbi would say things like, you have heard that it said, but I tell you. You've heard that it said, but I tell you. This rabbi was what was known as a rabbi. You can still look this word up. There's still this practice to this day. As a rabbi with smika. Let me hear you say smika. It's a fun one. Smika. Uh, rabbi with smika. A rabbi with smika or a rabbi with authority. Jesus does his Sermon on the Mount. We'll start there next week. Um, Jesus does his Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And then the very response to it, the very next story is the religious leaders come to him and say, where did you get your authority? Who told you that you could have a new interpretation? It has to be voted on by the, by, the, by the rabbis. And then Jesus engages in that debate. But where did you get it? They understand what Jesus is doing here. Now, the rabbis with Smika were rare. They were rock star rabbis. Uh, rabbis with Smika were the kind of rabbis that if they were to show up to town, you knew who they were. If, um, who's popular now? If, I'm so, I'm getting out of, I can't even think of a movie star right now. Tom Hanks, he's not, is he relevant yet? Tom Holland, okay. Tom Holland showed up and he sat right there. You'd be like, that's Tom Holland. I know who that is. I'd probably be like, hey, nice to meet you. Have I met you? Um, but you would be like, that's Tom Holland. Uh, rabbis with smika, people knew who they were. When they show up, people knew who they were. Uh, rabbis with smika were rock star rabbis. Kids, actually to this day, these kinds of rabbis, kids collect their playing cards. Let me show you a picture. Um, Actual base, I collected baseball cards. I fell for the scam of you can pay your way through college on these. It's a lie, kids. It's a lie. Um, but like kids collect that. You'd be like, I'll, I'll trade you a, a rabbi guy from Home Alone for a rabbi David Letterman after retirement. Like you would trade cards and you would trade the rabbi cards. A rabbi with smika was unbelievably rare. And so when a rabbi comes along with, these are, all rabbis are famous, but these are rock star famous. And only the best of the best of the best of the best. When these rabbis, you would study the interpretations in Bet Talmud, but the next layer of school, starting around the age of 14-ish, was a layer called Bet Midrash. Uh, at Bet Midrash, the best of the best of the best of the best of the best students, the best of the best would go on to the next layer of schooling, which is the house of interpretation. Now your opinion matters. Now your job is to say, I think that this, uh, this rabbi's got it right. And I want to devote my life to becoming that rabbi's student. Um, what we would call disciple, what they would refer to as a Talmud or a Talmudim. Um, but this was only... The best of the best of the best. Most people didn't make it this far. Most kids went back and they learned the family trade. Again, it's a noble profession. But most kids didn't go on this far. It's kind of like um, who played basketball as a kid, like at the park or in the driveway. Yeah, yeah, who played in junior high? Who played high school basketball? Who played in college? Any college ballers? College ballers? Who, who's currently starring in the NBA? The best of the best fall. To be, to, to be a student of a rabbi with smika is to be an NBA all-star. Like, you made it this far. Now, the goal of the rabbi, so you would essentially go to the rabbi and you would apply to be able to follow him. I want to follow you. I think I can do what you're doing. Now, the goal of the rabbi is he's got a yoke. He has a way of reading this Bible. He's got a way of reading the Torah. And he wants you to take it on. If you don't have character, you soil his interpretation of Scripture. If you are somebody who doesn't believe it passionately, you are somebody who ruins his legacy. If you're somebody who's not committed to this, you are somebody that will lose the yoke down the road. People will, will laugh at the rabbi down the road because his followers are X, Y, or Z. His vested interest is to pass down his teachings in such a way that you live it out. So he wants to make sure that he only chooses the best of the best of the best to follow him. So rabbis would have like their, their way of like filtering out the crowds. Um, you may come to him and say, I want to I follow you. I think I can do what you're doing. You're my favorite rabbi. I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. 
And he would say back to you, okay, the book of Habakkuk quotes the book of Deuteronomy how many times? And if you're good, you're like, okay, um, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 6 talks about the seven species. Our livelihoods are built on the seven species that fuel our economy. What are every reference of these seven species in the book of Leviticus? And how does that apply to the sacrificial? Why does God link those to the sacrificial system and give me them in reverse? <laughs> and if you're good, most kids are going to be like, uh, can I check my notes? Most kids are going to be like, I'm, I'm sorry. You clearly love God. You clearly are passionate, but I don't think you have what it takes. But every once in a while, there's a kid who's got it, who loves Jesus, loves this book, like buried it deep within him. And the rabbi sees within him something real. And the rabbi would then say to him, you've got what it takes. Come follow me. And you would devote your life from the age of 14 till about 30-ish to learning the yoke of the rabbi. Now, with all that, let's jump back into our story. Matthew 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Now, pause there. Why? If they're fishermen, what are they not? Who are they not following? They're not following a rabbi, right? They're, they're, if they're fishermen, if they're fishing, they're not the best of the best. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Why do they follow him? Is it because he's got sunbeams coming out of his face? Why do they follow him? A rabbi with smicha, a rabbi with authority, thinks I can be like him. We filled the other programs. The other rabbis said no. Maybe they didn't even get to the second layer of school. But they filled the programs. They're on the lake. And this rabbi says, I can be, he thinks I can be like him. In all of Jewish history, we know of only two rabbis, early rabbis at least, who went looking for his disciples. Most students would apply to follow a rabbi. We know of two who went and said, I think you can do it, I think you can do it, I think you can do it. A rabbi named Hillel and a rabbi named Jesus. Jesus went to these kids who failed the program and he says, I think you can do it. Matthew continues, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Listen, if they're apprenticing and learning to run the family business with their father Zebedee, how old are these disciples? 14? 15? To this day, um, let me show you a picture of a rabbi with his disciples. Listen, by the way, that kid right here, he's got it down. <laughs> listen, listen, uh, other than Peter, I think Peter's probably over 20. I can give you reasons later. But um, if the Bible, if this, the Gospels are not just some esoteric, a uh, collection of philosophy quotes and sayings that are good for us to do in life. If it, the Bible actually has its roots in a society and a culture and in a context. If the Bible, if these stories actually happened, if they're not just good things to read when we're bored, if they actually happened, then we have to entertain the idea that the disciples who changed the world were teenage boys who failed the program. This was a teaching that I was 23, and uh, I'm, I'm hearing this all for the first time. I'm like drinking it in at this point, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and I'm feeling way out of my element as I hear this, but it was like a fire got lit in my chest in that room. I remember thinking, um, so I've always... For me, the, the thing I've always clung to was I've never been the smartest in any room, um, but I've always said, you know what? I, I'll, I will outwork you. Never been the, the fastest, but I will outwork you. Um, I've never been the strongest, but I will outwork you. And that's always been my, and I remember hearing this and thinking, I can, I can do this. I can do this. 
But there was another side of me. Um, and, uh, and I think this is what was happening when I told that story. That realized that this, you know, no matter what happens, I'll just work harder. I'll, I'll try more. I can, out, I can outwork anyone. I can put more sweat in than anyone. I can get up earlier than anyone. I can stay up later than anyone. There was another side of me that when I was 25 years old and beginning to preach in church after church after church uh, in a position that people were beginning to call me reverend. You know what reverend means? The most revered one. Who knew, as I looked at my own heart, my own soul, my own life, that I am not worthy of being revered. And so I told the sermon, but I always told the story in my sermon, and I haven't told it in 15 years. And, uh, and then um, I was looking through my notes, and I saw the story, and I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, it's a story, we'll, we'll wrap here, but it's a story out of a book called Messy Spirituality by Mike Iaconelli. Um I read this book in college. Yes. Uh, Someone grab this book on your way out. Um, if, it, this book changed the game for me. So, such a beautiful book, such a beautiful human. Um, Mike Iaconelli passed away a few years ago, but just a beautiful human. He tells a story, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a silly little story. It's a, I think he made up the story. It's a silly little story, um, and yet it, I got emotional every single time I told it. Stories of a, of a little boy, and uh, this little boy, as Mike Iaconelli tells the story, wanted a puppy. And, uh, and so his birthday was coming, and he said to his parents every day leading up to his birthday, Mom and Dad, I want a puppy for my birthday. And again and again, they said, well, you're not old enough for the responsibility. You're not going to feed the dog. You're not going to take care of the dog. No, you can't get a puppy. I'm, you're, not, you're too young for a puppy um, every day. And so finally, his 12th birthday came, and he was holding on to hope, like, maybe Mom and Dad will get me this puppy. Uh, and he opened up his presents, and he realized very quickly, there's no puppy in these, in these presents. And, uh, and so he thanks his parents, but he's also quite sad. And then his dad pulls him aside and says, hey, son, mom and, mom and dad have one more gift for you. Tomorrow, we're going to walk to the pet store, and you get to pick out a puppy. And the kid lights up. Um, doesn't sleep at all that night. Uh, doesn't, doesn't get, like, he, he's running through his head, what kind of dog am I going to get? What kind of dog am I going to get? He makes his way to the pet store the next day with his parents, and the pet store owner meets them and understands, like, this is a big deal. He knows exactly what's going on. Oh, you're getting your first dog. This will be the dog that grows up with you. This is, the, like, this is a big deal. So he begins showing them all the dogs, um, all the different dogs. And he uh, eventually sees this cage of dogs. Um, and it's all these, like, brother, sister dogs. And they're all, like, running up to the, to the cage. And, and so the pet store owner's like, oh, you like these, like, little black labs. You want to you lab? Labs are great dogs. He starts pulling out the dogs. And he pulls out the first dog. He's like, this dog, like, this dog is always fun to play with. And the, the little boy says, no, I think I want that one in the back. All the dogs are running to the front of the kennel, but there's a dog in the back who's just kind of sitting there. And the boy says, I think I want that dog. And the pet store owner tries to divert. And he's like, no, have you seen this dog? This dog is like, this dog is a ton of fun, and it's always the first awake. And he goes, no, I, I think I want that dog. And so the pet store owner was trying to avoid this, but he said, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but, um, and this is where the story, like, God, I did not expect this. He said, I don't know how to tell you this, but the, the, that little dog was born, and he's only got three, three paws. He's only got three legs. Um, and we, we think he's going to be a great dog for an older couple or an older person, but you really want a little dog who can run and play with you. Um, you want a dog that can do all the things that you can do, and this dog just can't. And the little boy looked at his parents, and then he looked at the pet store owner, and he said, no, I want that dog. And then, I love how Mike Iaconelli tells the story. He says he lifted up his, le his pant leg to reveal that he, uh, underneath the pant leg, had a prosthetic limb. And he says to the pet store owner, I want that dog. I can't run and play with my friends. There are things that I've been told that I can't do, but he'll do them with me. He'll be my friend. I want that dog. I told that story 20 times, 30 times, 25-year-old me telling the story, trying to figure out years later, why did I tell this story? Um, I think there's a war in me, and I'm guessing it's in you too, and it's a discipleship war. There is the me that knows how to work hard, put in the sweat, um, the word disciple comes, shares a link with the word, shares a root with the word discipline. 
Like discipline is part of the game. And I love that part of me. That's the part of me I choose to show you. But then there's another part of me. And I'm guessing you have it too. And some days you wake up and you look in the mirror and you think, today I'm gonna, we're going to grind. Like we're going to go after. We're going to set some PRs on the Peloton or whatever. Like today's our day. And then there's other days you wake up and you think, I'm a fraud and I just am going to limp my way through today. What's so powerful and so moving for me in the disciple story is that Jesus is going to choose rejects. He trusts that in the hands of our God, these guys, by the way, you will not find smarter guys, more passionate guys, more devoted guys, but in, the, in their world, they failed. And Jesus is going to entrust the whole thing to them. We're gonna take communion this morning and uh, that's the the invitation I, I want to leave us today. As we take communion, um, what is God wanting to remind you of what's true in your life? Uh, we've got four stations in the front um, with, there's bread and juice and uh, there's the little cups if you, if you would prefer to do um, kind of a, yeah, if you prefer those. And then in the back, there is a gluten-free station. We moved the gluten-free station to the back. Um, and so the gluten-free station is in the back and, uh, and then Dave is going to be, Dave Helder is going to be roaming. If you um, would like someone to, to take communion with and to serve you, just pop your hand up and he would love to serve you in communion. Yeah. Oh, there's also gluten-free in each corner. There are gluten-free in each corner. And then there's a gluten-free, specific in, of gluten-free in the back too, right? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. So there's gluten-free in the corners. And then if you have uh, a, a real sensitive allergy to it, because um, it may be dipping in both in the bowl, um, Go to the back. So with that, let me have a word of prayer. Lord, we, um, we acknowledge that uh, our own insecurities have checked. We've checked ourselves out of the game so many times. Lord, we acknowledge that we have settled. Uh, uh, Lord, just thinking of the language that Pastor Tanner gave us last week, we have settled for smaller versions of ourselves, um, smaller than you've created us to be. Lord, we have settled. We have chosen to believe that we can that we can live small lives. And God, we know that in your hands, you've entrusted us with the most important message this world has ever seen. And so Jesus, we pray this morning that your spirit would remind us of that again. As we take communion, uh, Lord, we take a step towards you this morning. And Lord, we thank you that we know you'll step back. Um, Lord, we thank you that you'll step towards us as we step towards you. And so Jesus, we pray all of this in your beautiful name. And everybody said... On the night he was betrayed, Christ took bread, and after, after they had eaten, he broke it and said, This is my body. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.